It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Roger Earl, a founding member of the legendary British rock band Foghat. The group will be performing this Friday, May 27th at 8 p.m. at the Golden Nugget Las Vegas. For ticket information, go to goldennugget.com. And for everything about Roger and Foghat, go to foghat.com. And you can follow them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And Roger, welcome to the show. Ira, nice to be here. How are you doing? Doing very well. I want to put aside the eight gold records, the two platinum records, and one multi-platinum <laughs> record just for a moment, because the essential okay. question I have for you, which I already know the answer to because I met you and I could tell by your personality, do you need a sense of humor to survive in a rock band? Without it, you're a goner. Yeah. You're a goner without it. Yes. No, you, you couldn't survive without a sense of humor. In fact, my wife often accuses me of... Um, finding humor and everything. And I said, well, better than crying all the bloody time, you know, what are you going to do? I take certain things seriously, like playing, performing. Mind you, I have fun with that too, but uh, <laughs> I take it seriously. <laughs> there was a great quote, which I used to hang on my wall, which I've only repeated once before, or I, I mentioned once before to a guest. And the, it's a slogan, which is, you're only young once, but with humor, you can be immature forever. <laughs> so I, I think that that applies to many of us who are. I don't want to grow up. I don't want to grow up. Why would I want to grow up? Then, then, then people would say he's old. It's like some people, you know, I'm going to be 76 this Monday. And uh, people come up and call me sir. I said, please don't call me sir. <laughs> The Queen hasn't knighted me, and uh, it makes me sound old. <laughs> Roger. Roger sounds good, yes. Either yeah. don't say sir either, or, yeah, you don't want to use the Mr. part either, I would imagine, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, Mr. Earl. Mr. Um, Earl, yeah. That, if it's formal, you know, you're coming into a hotel, they say, ah, oh, welcome, Mr. Earl. Nice to have you again. I say, when was the last time you had me then? Uh, <laughs> You realize, <laughs> you realize even though you haven't been knighted, if you were earled, it would be the Earl of Earl, in a sense. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I once um, tried to follow, follow why and how last names come about. I think it was because we were serfs of the Earl's men. I think it had something like that. There was no cheap royalty in my family, as far as I know. Um, pretty nice bunch, though. Get on very well with all the family. But no, no royalty, no royalty. And, and Her Majesty hasn't decided to knight me. Well, I don't live there anymore. Um, <laughs> I'm part of the colonials now. <laughs> you are. In fact, it's, I, I'm always marveled at the fact that you came over from England or Great Britain and settled yeah. in, of all places, Long Island, which some consider a country of its own. Yes. <laughs> and yet you retain that accent without merging it with either an American accent or a Long Island accent. How did you manage to do that? I, I don't know. I think it serves me well. 
It does. You can take the boy out of London, but you can't take the London out of the boy. Something right, like right. along those lines, I think. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about your playing because obviously that's what you're known for, as well as your sense of humor and everything else. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about Fog Hat Cellars down the road too. But okay. you, you began to play drums at the age of 12. So the logical question is, did the music take your mind off of girls? 12... I heard that laugh in the background. I, I just started. Uh, actually, no, I always liked girls. In fact, I've, I've said that to my wife many times. I mean, and I like women in general. I, I mean, I don't mean to be facetious or even anything other than that. That's the truth. I think women, and maybe it's because I've met some really terrific women in my life. I mean, uh, I'm still good friends with my first two wives. Hmm. I was a better boyfriend. I like than the husband. way you said that first two wives. <laughs> <laughs> my, my my third wife is my best friend, girlfriend, and manager. So she has lots of titles. <laughs> I don't know if you realize this, but you're actually playing the drums while you're talking to me. You're tapping something, and I hear it. My mom used to say, tap, tap, bang, bang. That's all he ever did. <laughs> banged on the lampshades. Um, yes. <laughs> Now, not all rock band drummers would idolize Buddy Rich, but you did and do. So what was it about his playing that inspired you at a pretty young age, too? Well, actually, it was the first record I bought with, uh, I bought it in a secondhand store. It was um, music. Um, there were two drummers, I think it was Buddy Rich, um, Louis Belson. Also, I think um, Lionel Hampton was playing Vibes. Jazz at the Philharmonic, it was called. And we had a record player, and I bought it, I think, in a secondhand store, probably paid, you know, literally pennies for it. And I put it on the record, and there was all these drum solos and vibraphone things going on, and it mesmerized me. I could never even begin to approach what Buddy Rich was to the music world and, and to as a drummer. Um, in fact, I have a picture of him up in the living room. I didn't, I've never met him, but I did sit about no more than like 12, 15 feet away from him one day. I was in a club in New York a long time ago. I can't remember if it was when I was in Savoy Brown or when I was in uh, Foghat, but it was in New York. I think he had a club there. And uh, it was like, wow. <laughs> uh, and, and for him to sort of come across above all the horns and stuff, um, yeah, he was just a phenomenal uh, drummer. He was um, he uh, he was something else. He was like one of those rare musicians that were totally unique and set a whole new standard for how, how you play, you know, music. The reason I bring it up is because he was more associated with big bands and some jazz as opposed to your rock and blues, and yet you can see the ta you saw the talent and the dexterity that he had well i remember uh, when we first came over with um savoy brown like around 69 and 70 uh the record company we were with we would go there and they would give you arms full of records and and from time to time there were uh buddy rich was doing a lot of music around the late 60s like funk and, and different from like earlier his earlier jazz work and uh, it was really interesting. And I remember bringing those records home. I don't know where they are now, but they were uh, really interesting. And he was uh, a force of nature. 
he was like people were a number of drummers have tried to emulate and, and play like the way he played i was never that foolish <laughs> <laughs> you were wise right <laughs> I, was wise. I, I couldn't even begin to approach the man but um you know i i play um i play for the song you know i grew up listening to some jazz but mostly rock and blues that was my influence and still is to this day that's what i listen to uh, and occasionally I'll, I'll put you know if i'm just if it's just me driving in the car i'll find a jazz station and listen to stuff and occasionally sometimes it just gets a little um well, i shouldn't really say this but uh no go ahead yeah it sounds almost like music but every now and again you'll hear a band that's like ripping and you go wow <laughs> you know like wow everybody's like you know, I, I saw a program um, on the TV about Miles Davis a, a little while ago, and it really moved me. You know, what the man, not only what the man had to go through and the crap he had to put up with, was what, how he played and, and the music, the range of music that he played in and with, that he was like, that, that's another person, just, a, you know, an incredibly unique musician who just like drew music from everywhere and he just wailed it was uh, yeah that impressed me i was blown away when i in fact i, I talked to scott holt our guitar player and singer in the band about it and he'd seen it as well and he was impressed as well do you uh, find that um, there are a lot of rock musicians that don't necessarily it's not so much that they don't appreciate other genres but they haven't opened their minds to the wider world so they're just within their narrow niche because you are the opposite you appreciate musicianship and talent no matter what the genre is uh, when i was younger i don't think i did no i think when i was younger i was i had blinders on it was like i remember saying to my cousin who was five years older than me i was li i was living with him in london when i, I moved out of, i left home when i was 15 not particularly wise <laughs> 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 I, I appreciated my mother and father after that. Yes. But, uh, um, it was um, my cousin had a, a lot of, you know, jazz records and, and I started listening to stuff that he was playing. But I said to him one time about pure blues and he said, there's nothing pure about the blues. And it's true. It was like a, it's an amalgamation of, you know, all sorts of musics and, um, and feelings, you know, obviously, you know, uh, black musicians who came over from Africa, that's where it all started. I mean, without blues and jazz, rock and roll, bebop, swing, you know, it all came from that era. So, there, you know, my cousin was right. He sort of said, there's nothing pure about it. It's like music, you know. And, they, and in fact, I remember when I was watching this uh, special on Miles Davis, there was a record my cousin was playing at the time. This is about 1964, 65, somewhere around there, Sketches of Spain. It was a marvelous record. Right. And it was like, quite get it at the time, but I, I, I kept listening to it because it was just fascinating the way it, it moved. But back then I was just, I would just count to four, you know, you know, playing shuffles. Sorry about that. That's okay. I like that. <laughs> The listeners can't tell what you're doing, but you're playing. It was great. Yeah. But blues is also, I think, a genre that approaches the soul, if not enters the soul. There are not a lot of genres that can do that. Yeah. You know, it always reminds me of a quote from uh, 
Lonesome, Lonesome Dave, I remember him saying it to, to We were just talking about it one time, and he said, there's just something honest about blues music. There's, you know, it has an honesty that you can't, you can't deny, you know, the words, the lyrics that the, it's, uh, it's, and I, I thought that was a really cool way to sort of say it about the music. And, you know, I've, I've been fortunate. I've met, you know, over the years, a bunch of my musical heroes. I played with John Lee Hooker. Um, I, I played with Muddy Waters, Paul Butterfield, Johnny Winter. Johnny was a piece of work. I loved the man. He was, uh, he was special. And in fact, we did a show in 1977 in uh, the Palladium in New York City where Falkat's tribute to the blues, where we were basically the, the house band. And um, it was my father's 60th birthday. And uh, I'd brought them over from uh, London, England to uh, stay in New York. I think I put them up at the plaza or some somewhere really nice. Anyway, we were backstage and I said, Mum and Dad, it's Mr. Muddy Waters. Muddy, my mum and dad. So the youngest of their family is meeting one of his musical heroes. Muddy was beautiful, by the way. What a really, really beautiful man and really cool. He was, uh, you know, that's what's nice about when you meet some of your musical heroes, that they're like, they don't let you down when they talk to you. Like, I met, um, uh, oh, just, you know, so many. It was, um, yeah. Yeah, Muddy was something else. And also, too, the fact that he got to talk to your, your father, which yeah, your father yeah, got to right. talk to him, which is really nice, too. It was, it was. It was. Foghead itself yeah. as a group, it's, it's changed personnel over the years and decades, but what do you think accounts for its enduring quality, if that's the term I could use, its popularity yeah. and its enduring quality? Because clearly you're out touring all the time. Yeah. It's a quote from The Stones. Ah, uh, no, it's only rock and roll, but I like it, like it. Yes, I do. I like it. <laughs> uh, that's another great band. I love the Stones. I was always a fan well, of them. Well, you definitely like rock and roll and rock and blues, but that doesn't answer my question. I'm not letting you get away okay. with that yet. Okay. So the what is what accounts for the popularity and the endurance of the group from the perspective of the fans? I understand your, your th feelings on it, and you're going to keep performing forever, but what is it I'm that... Gonna play. I'm going to play. That, that, that. Yeah, so there we are. <laughs> <laughs> bang, 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 tap, tap, tap. That's what it does. Skins. <laughs> but there's got to be a, either one or two reasons that you think accounts for the fact that people want to hear Foghead. Do you know what those reasons are? Or have you not thought about it? Because I know um, you're in the moment I, a lot, so you're performing all the time, so you maybe not think about it, but that's why I wanted to ask the question. I don't really think, um, you know, rock and roll music should be dissected, as it were, because it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward, um, as my older well, brother no, once said. Hang on, though. I'm not, I'm not asking you to dissect the music. I'm asking no. you to dissect the group's appeal. <laughs> That's different uh, than the music. Well, three chords. <laughs> All right. You're not going to answer my question. Uh, well, it, it's like, you're um, being modest, is, is my I, point. I, yeah, I, I, think we, I think we got it right most of the time. Uh, the band was always in charge of recording. Um, no, Nobody actually told us to, uh, you know, 
to play. And we had we worked with some terrific musicians and producers over the years, but it was always the band. You know, Dave was the main songwriter. Rob Price was the innovator as far as you know, bass slide and stuff like that. And we always had great bass players. All the bass players I played with, there was you know three, I think. They were all great bass players. In fact, the first band I was in, the bass player was my best friend from school, from high school. So uh, I was fortunate in that, and I understood the link between bass and drums because, um, you know, without the bass and drums, they're nothing. They're nothing. <laughs> They'd be nothing without us. Don't tell your fellow <laughs> bandmates. <laughs> they, they laugh. How many, how many bands are there? Just bass and drums. Whoa, yeah, you got a point. <laughs> <laughs> Can you compare your group in terms of endurance with some of the other groups that you? Because you, your group grew up with other groups, and you, your group is still out there performing, as other groups are too. So, did you kind of measure each other in that sense? That hey, I'm still out there performing, and you're still out there performing. Uh, well, you know, I mean, I. We've lost, I mean, I've lost so many bandmates, you know, Lonesome Dave, Rob Price, Craig McGregor, who, you know, were the nucleus as far as I was concerned of this band. But the good Lord hasn't seemed quite fit to take me just yet. No, I checked with him <laughs> so, or her recently, and you're fine for at least another 10 years. <laughs> uh, um, so I'm going to... I'm going to carry on playing. And I've been fortunate, I think, also with the people that have joined the band. They've all been um, of a similar mind. You know, they love the blues. They love rock and roll. So, yeah, there have been, there have been a lot of changes except for me. Um, <laughs> what did she say? So, I don't, what did you say? What did you say? She said nothing. Okay, fair I'm enough. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Lonesome Dave so that people get a sense of who he was because that, he was at, with you at the beginning. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, one of the reasons I'm in the band, I think, is because of Dave. David joined Savoy Brown about three months before me and uh, they just changed or fired their drummer and bass player. My friend, Dave Hutchins, who I went to school with, was a bass player and the band we were in we were a three-piece Ray Dorsett who was the singer with uh, Mungo Jerry was the lead singer and uh, we just weren't getting much work so looking for uh, work elsewhere and I saw this advert in I think the melody maker for a blues band looking for a bass player and a drummer so Dave and I went there the first time we didn't get the gig but about three or four weeks later we had the same agency uh, they called me up again and said you uh, you want to come down and try out again? And I went, yeah, sure. So I go down to the Nags Head, which is in um, it's in North or no, it's in South London, I think. And uh, I go there, I borrow my father's car, put the drums in there, carry the my drums upstairs, and I played for like two and a half hours, a, a long time. I start packing up the drums and like going downstairs. They said, where, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to work. I was a commercial artist. They said, we got a gig in Birmingham tonight. <laughs> but uh, Dave had been in the band and when they got rid of their drummer I think it was Bill Bruford actually apparently he couldn't play a shuffle he can but maybe it wasn't the way they liked it Dave said how about that bloke with the image he was really good so 
I have to thank Dave for that. Dave was, um, I love Dave because every, every, whenever, whenever we got, went on stage, he would give it nothing less than 110%. He was like, um, even when he was ill towards the end, he would give every ounce of energy for that time he was on stage. And so it was like, great, you go on stage and you know Dave's going to be there. There was no sort of tantrums or anything. He he loved to perform. He loved to play. He loved to sing. And uh, like I said, even when he was ill, he still like gave it everything. And I loved him for that because that's what a band's all about. We were all, This band was always a band. Occasionally there were some issues, but when, when we took the stage, we acted like a band. In the studio, we played like a band. We, everybody like contributed to the uh, performance to the arrangement. Uh, occasionally something sort of happened easier than others. We'll take, for instance, uh, Slow Ride. That came from a jam. Nick Jameson, Tony Stevens had just left the band on bass. And Nick Jameson, uh, who I was good friends with and had also worked with us on a couple of other albums, and I was living up in Woodstock at the time. And I said, you want to join a band? And he said, yeah. <laughs> so I went down to Long Island. Rod Price and I owned a house down there. And we'd um, soundproofed the basement. And it was came from a jam. Uh, we were jam. It started off with like a, a John Lee Hooker rip played in like 4-4 four, four instead of a shuffle. Da-da, da-da, da And... Uh, after we finished, you know, playing the song, it was pretty much the same arrangement, except for the middle, the breakdown, the bass and drum thing came later. But it was, that was the arrangement. And Dave said, I've got some words that all might fit with that. <laughs> so it was um, slow riding, very, very good to me. <laughs> he clearly had an influence on you. And I'm going to make the assumption that you give 110% when you're out on the stage as well. Yeah. Um, I've had some like, physical issues, you know, fingers and thumbs and toes and stuff. But generally, I try, I try to stay healthy, you know, stretch, exercise with light, light weights. It was weird through the COVID nightmare, though, because you couldn't go to the gym or do anything, really. But, um, yeah, the, it's when playing drums, there's, there's a, like a, the mechanics of playing. You have to be able to, you know, move left and right, right, left, and your feet have to work properly and you – got to get what's going on up here to transfer to these and those down there. So uh, that's part of the fun of being a drummer. It's the physical, but it's also the mental synchronization. So yeah. you can sync with your fingers and your hands and know where you are at any moment. Yeah, yeah kind of. The only issues I have now is because, you know, playing in rock and roll bands since I was like 15, I guess, 16, my hearing is... Pardon? It's, no, it's not. No, without yes. the hearing aids, um, yes. conversations will be, pardon? Can you speak up a little bit? <laughs> I am. I'm shouting. Uh, and, uh, but other than that, life has been kind to me. It has. Okay. I, I have to have you tell us a little bit about Foghat Cellars because it intrigued me that you have your own winery your partners with others, but still just to be able to have that, does that give you a sense of satisfaction? Because it's separate from the music, but it's, it's in its own way, an art form. Yeah. That wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened without my manager because what happened is we played, we played out in California at the uh, mid state California, Paso Robles. 
And uh, a winemaker came to see us, and Seabreast uh, Musing, great winemaker. And uh, he sent an email to Linda and said, would you be interested in making wine? I, I started giggling. <laughs> and we met, and good fun. I really enjoyed meeting the farmers. Those those folks really are special, especially the people who work on the farms, you know, pick the fruit and do all the, all the hard work. I did it a couple of times. We're up at, like, first light, uh, you know, before, because you, apparently you can't pick grapes when it's hot out. You have to pick them when it's a bit cooler. So I was impressed with that. And also the generosity of the farmers and the people who make wine and uh, and grow the fruit, it's, they're very generous. The first thing they do is like, would you like a drink? Would you like something to eat with that? It's, um, and, and also, like I said before, I, I really enjoyed, you know, working with the people who actually pick the fruit. Those people like work really hard. Uh, I don't know what work is compared to that. You're having fun on stage. I mean, you do work, but it's still fun. Whereas picking grapes is not necessarily fun, but you also see what happens when it comes from the vineyard to the processing, to the bottle, and then you're consuming it. So, Yeah, actually, I think it was uh, 2010 that we actually made the, the... 2007. 2007 was our first one. We actually made it, and the we actually punched down and picked the grapes. So 2010, we punched down. Yeah, punched down, and the 2000, yeah, 2010, it was a Chardonnay and a Pinot Noir that we actually picked and actually made the rest of the time um, our winemakers involved or we'll find some wine that's already made elsewhere but yeah it was um it's been fun it's a it, you don't make a lot of money at it in fact <laughs> probably because the drummers drinking profits <laughs> well there's only one thing left to do and that is to write a rock song about wine yeah uh, that's, that's true chateau de feet 59 we had dave already did that but um <laughs> it's um but it's also a nice way of um, either thanking people, you know, you send them a couple of bottles of wine. That part is really cool. Uh, apparently back in the 70s, people used to do other things. We won't go there, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we send bottles of wine to people and, uh, yeah, it's um, – and sitting down with a bottle of wine and opening it up with friends or people that are about to become friends, it's – yes, it's, it's – so long as you're able to handle yourself, which we all can. Especially pros like you. Yeah, pros. Yeah, we're professionals. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Roger Earl, a founding member of the legendary British rock band Foghat. The group will be performing this Friday, May 27th at 8 p.m. at the Golden Nugget Las Vegas. For ticket information, go to goldennugget.com. And for everything about Roger and Foghat, go to foghat.com. And you can follow them on Twitter. Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And Roger, thanks for being on the show. Hi, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah.